Jesus. His story is a story of tragedy. He was a disappointed man with a tragic life. So, one of the scholars said this, Jeremiah is an odd mixture of complaint and praise. An odd mixture of despair and confidence. I was talking to my wife this week. I said, I'm an odd mixture of despair and confidence. I mean, that's just, I like, I like Jeremiah. I know this isn't, I, I get it. I've done a series on Lamentations. I think Jeremiah was involved in writing. I'm only going to do one on Lament in this series. I know this is not your favorite thing to come and listen to, but I hope I make a strong case about why it is so important that you and I learn to lament if we're going to have a healthy soul and be a compassionate people. If you wrestle with Jeremiah, if you read through the book, you're going to see that part of Jeremiah wants to strike out and complain to God, while the other part of him wants to affirm that God alone is his protector. He's just, Jeremiah is just real. There's no facade with this guy. So I want to talk about Jeremiah, and I want to talk about lament. And I think part of, this is where it ties to our series, part of living in a modern-day Babylon means that you and I are not trained to deal well with our sadness, our disappointment, our loss, and our grief. I was thinking if, if I wrote a book like Jeremiah and took it to some editor, they'd be like, oh my goodness, Jeff, there's way too much doom and gloom and tragedy. Like, you got a couple verses of hope here, a couple, this is funny here, expand on that. Like, let's, let, that's what people want to buy. That's what people, people don't want to read your doom and gloom. But I said this to first service, I'll say this to you. I'm borrowing this phrase from another pastor, but I think it's sticky. <laughs> at Crossview, we are not aiming at easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity. We want the abundant life that comes from Jesus, but Jesus himself says that the only way to find that life is to walk the narrow road of suffering and pain. I know you don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it, but I want life, and I want Jesus, and that's what Jesus says. And as a pastor who wants to navigate through difficult times with people and help keep souls healthy, <laughs> I want to equip us, and I think, I think the Bible equips us. So in case you're not convinced, let me, I was listening, I, I did a lot of reading and listening this week. I, I'm always trying to learn about lament. And this is basically a sociologist, and just see, I think there's a lot of, like, I think this will connect with some of our stories in the last 18 months and beyond. But this is one sociologist, as they were looking back at our culture, they wouldn't have used the language of modern-day Babylon, they're just talking about our culture, but this, we live in a culture that has zero tolerance for grief. The thing about grief in a culture that does not accept sadness is that our culture doesn't know what to do with it. So the only emotions that our culture finds acceptable when you're feeling sad are anger and fear. Our culture is happy to accept anger and fear. But if you have anything else, you just need to hide it away. The problem is that the way we're wired as human beings, whether we hide our grief or not, our body will always forcefully move toward it because we need it. Grief is the price we pay for loving. This person says, why are the courageous the most heartbroken? It's because you have to have courage to love. 
because you love anyone or anything and you will get your heart broken. We are wired to be brave with our lives. Courage and loss and grief are reminders. Important, you'll see why. Courage and loss and grief are reminders that we're alive. They hurt, but they remind us we're alive. They hurt, and we don't want to feel the hurt anymore, so we numb it right now in modern-day Babylon. We numb it with everything imaginable. And what happens when you numb the hurt and you numb the grief is that you also numb the joy and the light. You cannot selectively numb affect. When you numb anything, you numb it all. So instead of collective grief, longing, loss, and acknowledging our lostness, we numb it. And as a result, we numb our joy too. We don't feel sharp points of good or bad, and we start to question if we're alive. And now, in modern-day Babylon, we have all these numb people, so we also have what this person calls emotional pornography. The only way to tap into anything is to be so overboard and so extreme and so crazy. We can't respond to anything until it's so over the top because we're so numb at so many layers. And we make it back by acknowledging that grief is hard and sadness is hard and fear is real. And that the most courageous among us will be brokenhearted because they had the courage to love. And the most engaged among us, the most alive among us will know disappointment because they had the courage to care. I think that's an accurate representation of what's going on in our modern-day Babylon. So what we want to do now is look to Jeremiah. How, how is Jeremiah going to help us? So if you want to turn in your Bibles or follow along, we're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, this Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. And I said, oh, Lord God, behold, I don't, know how, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. And the Lord said, don't say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you will go. And you'll see a little bit about how that plays out. And whatever I command you, you will speak. Don't be afraid. What does heaven always say to earth? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you. I will deliver you, said the Lord. And then, I love this, the Lord, I, I, I just, I, I get, what is this, what is this really, what was this experience really like for Jeremiah? I think these prophets are always trying to find words to describe their spiritual encounters with God, but in Jeremiah's experience, somehow the only way you can say it is the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. I mean, it's not like a hand dropped from the skies, I mean, but somehow, it's how Jeremiah's experience, somehow it just felt, it just felt the hand of the Lord touch his mouth and God puts the word. Put my words in your mouth. Verse 10, and this kind of becomes a paradigm or a pattern for what you'll find throughout Jeremiah's prophecy is poems. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And it's interesting because he's not a king, he's a prophet, but God is setting him over nations and over kingdoms in a different way with the word of God to pluck up and to break down. To destroy and to overthrow, which is what most of Jeremiah's poems are about. <laughs> this destruction of Babylon that's going to come upon Jerusalem. But there's also going to be some poems that deal with building and planting. To build and to plant. 
So that's what you get as you go through Jeremiah. Now we could say there's a few things on these verses. Jeremiah, you could say, and I th- we get excited about this kind of, he's a prophet for the end times. We like that. <laughs> but it seems like, I mean, there's often end times, right? Things are always ending. And certainly in Jeremiah's day and in the story of Israel, I mean, this is end. Jerusalem being destroyed, the temple of God. I mean, this is the end. Jeremiah's a prophet of the end times. And part of what he's doing with his majestic poetry is that he's shattering old worlds and he's forming new worlds. He has poems of doom that are for bringing old worlds to an end. And he has poems of hope that are for bringing into existence new worlds with new possibilities. You could say that the task of the prophet is to alert us to that which is about to end. And I want you to think about this if you feel like you're in your own personal exile right now. The prophet alerts us to that which is about to end so that we can be prepared and embrace that which is about to be born. (laughs) Jeremiah's task isn't easy and it upsets people because people are comfortable with the way things are. This is why Jesus ruffled so many feathers. People get alarmed if you start to tell them that things have to change. People don't like it and they don't want to hear it. And they'd rather live in denial. And I talked about this last week, but what these Hebrew prophets are doing is they're calling people back to this vision that you get from Moses. Remember I said last week, God is trying to form a people that do something the world's never seen. The people, part of of what's God's frustrated, Jeremiah's, is the people of God keep, I want to be like Egypt. Let's be like Assyria, now Babylon. Then into the New Testament, well, let's be like the Greeks and Alexander the Great. No, let's be like Rome. God's like, no, I want to do something different. I want you to be a light in the darkness. And the Hebrew prophets are always calling people back to this vision that God gave Moses. Something new, something different, something the world's never seen before. So Jeremiah is a frustrated prophet who spoke God's word in an age of false optimism and self-deception. And the only way for the new and true to begin is for the old and false to come to an end. And nobody wanted to hear what he had to say. And this is the first little nugget of hope that I'll drop before you. But 586 BC, I mean, if you enter into the worldview and story of the Israel, it was the end. I mean, the destruction of the temple, the exile, it's the end of the world for the Jews. (laughs) But it's not the ultimate end, is it? (laughs) Here we sit. 2,600 years later. Maybe it was the end of that, but it becomes the birth of this. And it's why I often say, in Christ, if your story hasn't finished well, it hasn't finished yet. If you find yourself in exile, you're living out a tragedy, I want you to hear You haven't reached the ultimate end yet. If your story hasn't finished well, it hasn't finished yet. Maybe you are in exile, but your story's not done. God is writing something beautiful. Or I'll say it this way. I heard another pastor say it this way. In Christ, no story is left as a tragedy. Maybe your story's a tragedy, right? But it won't be left that way because of who our God is. (laughs) Now, maybe you're with me in feeling 
like an odd mixture of despair and confidence. And you're kind of like, all right, I get it. I am in tragedy. It's tragic times. I'm in despair. But I still have confidence in God. And I know my story's not done, but I still, I don't know, it's still a lot of darkness. And you're like, all right, Jeff, I'm in. I got the despair and the confidence, and I'm wrestling with it. But what do I do to keep my soul healthy while I wait for the blessed ending? I believe the ending's coming, but it doesn't seem to be here. What do I do while I wait for Jesus to do what only he can do? How do I keep myself healthy? How do I not give in to despair? So let's go back to Jeremiah. Let's look at some examples of lament. I just want to give you a feel for some of the language Jeremiah will use in his poetry. Jeremiah 8, verse 18, my joy is gone. It's gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has, been take, has taken hold on me. And then this is good lament. There's always these unanswerable questions. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician here to help us? Why then is the health of the daughter of my people not better? Where are you, God? Why haven't you restored your people? I don't have a slide for this, but if you read the next verse, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day. And I told you, it's not a fun sermon, but it's healthy for your soul. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And it's okay to say that he's not cynical. There's a lot of doom. He's not a cynical person, and he's not mean. The reality is true prophets are tender-hearted and they're broken-hearted. They're the courageous who love. I mean, you read these verses and, and, it's, and it's, it's fair to ask, is this Jeremiah or is this God or is it just both? Jeremiah has the heart of God for his people. And he weeps. And yet, even though he has the heart of God for his people, he still wrestles with God. How about Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 and 9? These are, these are great verses. <laughs> As a pastor, I'm like, man, these are great verses. This is Jeremiah. Oh, Lord, you have deceived me. And I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout what you told me to say. Violence and destruction is coming. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. And then verse 9, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire that is shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. <laughs> Jeremiah is basic. I don't know if you've ever been in ministry and you've ever had this conversation with God. Jeremiah is like, I quit. I quit, God. Here's why you tricked me. You knew it. You called me when I was young, and you knew I didn't know any better. 
And you led me to believe that people would want to hear what I have to say. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. And when they listen, they hate me for what I'm saying. And on top of that, you knew I would get mocked. You knew I would be mistreated. You knew I would be misrepresented. I quit. But this is the mixture. (laughs) I can't quit. Because there's a fire in my bones. I feel that way sometimes. That's why I love Peter. Peter wrestles with Jesus like this. All others are leaving. Are you going to leave? But Peter says, Lord, to whom would I go? That's where I'm at. Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else am I going to go? I mean, just Jeremiah is honest. This is honest. And some of it is because Jeremiah does not live in denial. One author says this, if we live in denial, we don't know what to do with suffering when it comes. If you are only shaped by modern day Babylon, you will not know what to do when suffering comes. But Jeremiah, if you read through his story, he is formed in the crucible of suffering. And he knows what to do. Jeremiah writes a poem, he sings a song, he creates a lament that gives full expression to the pain that he feels. Or I like, I like to think we're a church that appreciates art. Jeremiah makes art out of his pain so he can give it away to God. I mean, that's what real lament is. You and I are artists made in the image of a creative God, a creator. And what we learn to do is make art out of our pain so that we can give it to God. We direct our laments to God. God is the only audience that we're interested in. Other people may hear our lament, but it's really for God. And if you wrestle enough with the laments in in the Bible, they're all through Psalms, the whole book of Lamentations, much of what Jeremiah does, When we lament, we're not asking God to do something. We're just pouring out the sorrow or the grief or the confusion or the frustration or the unanswerable questions. We're just getting it out because it's got to go somewhere. And we give it to God. That's, That's the key. That's the key with lament. You give it to God because he understands and he can bear it. And instead of you carrying it around, you release it in your lamentation. And you turn your sorrow into an artistic prayer of poetic lament. Now, lament is good for multiple... I know we don't like to talk about it. It's not easy to talk about, but it's good for our personal life. And as I said, it's necessary for the health of our souls. What lament does is that it brings pain and grief out into the open. Instead of keeping it hidden away, you bring it out, you acknowledge it, you share it so that it can eventually be healed. You name it. I I can tell you the moment, and Jesus promises this in the Beatitudes, the moment you begin to acknowledge your pain, your loss, your anxiety, and your uncertainty is the moment you open the door for the comfort of God to enter your life. Because that's what heals your wounded soul. It's the comfort of God. But if you don't acknowledge your grief and your pain, then you internalize it and it begins to poison your soul. And if you've ever done it or been self-aware enough to know that you're doing it, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) What lament does is instead of poisoning your soul, is purge your soul. 
it's part of the healing process. It, it's not aggravating the problem. It's, it's actually, you can think about it this way. It's cleansing the wound so your wound doesn't get infected so it can heal. <laughs> so Jeremiah, of many in the Old Testament, teaches us to mourn and grieve, express our pain in the presence of God. He's our audience. Lament is good for you personally, but it's also good for our church community. If we're going to be something the world's never seen before, if we're going to be a light in the darkness, in modern day Babylon, we can ask the question, can we create churches that understand that mourning is not a sign of weakness? And maybe if you've been schooled in modern day Babylon, maybe you do think mourning and then you're just going to have to, I mean, wrestle with the, don't listen to me, listen to God, <laughs> but wrestle with how many of the biblical authors are teaching us to lament and mourn and grieve that which is broken. And read through Jeremiah, it's a hard read, it is, but maybe read, skim it and just see, see if you think Jeremiah is weak. I don't think he's weak. But can we, can we be a church, can Crossview be a church that understands that mourning is not a sign of weakness, but a spiritual work to be attended to, something we do together? One author says this, like no other people in history, we strive to ignore our pain and deny our sorrow. We have become a people addicted to entertainment and schooled in denial. None of this is healthy. Our practice is a frightened response to the possibility of pain. We don't think we can bear it, so we pretend we don't know about it. Our culture doesn't know how to mourn, and this is a problem. <laughs> in other words, when you and I are schooled in denial, we earn a degree in how to stay miserable. And, and, and we can say it this way, easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity has no place for lament. No place. Trying to be happy all the time, which is easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity, is an exercise in denial. You're schooling yourself in denial. And honestly, the reality is it's only going to multiply your existential misery. The author continues, because we are uncomfortable with sorrow, we passively enforce a kind of mandated happiness in our churches. Instead of weeping with those who weep, we want everybody to just cheer up. And we want them, this is key, we want them to cheer up for our sake because we are so terribly uncomfortable with their sorrow. What we should do instead is join them in their sorrow and assist them in the work of grief. You and I need to learn the work of grief so Crossview can be a place where we can teach others the work of grief because modern-day Babylon isn't teaching anybody the work of grief. You and I need to learn to sit in the dark. One other author defines compassion this way. Compassion is knowing your darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. <laughs> they said, we think compassion is seeing somebody and seeing their suffering, and so we begin to flip on as many lights as we can flip on. But that's not compassion for the person who's sitting in the dark. That's more about our own discomfort of sitting in the dark with them. 
And until we recognize our own pain, we will struggle with compassion. If we don't know our own darkness, we can't sit in the dark with others. But I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. If you and I can learn to sit in the dark with others, this is what we'll discover. And I know, I mean, I know this happens across you, and I know some of you are discovering this. I mean, I'm thankful for this. It's not like we don't do this at all. But I still think we're learning. What you'll discover if you sit in the dark, if, if you wait for Jesus to turn on the lights on his pace, you don't try to turn on the lights for people, but you let Jesus turn on the lights, and you just sit in the dark, what you will discover is that you can, you can get access to your pain in a community of people that you trust, and all of a sudden your pain is now bearable. Do you understand? Some of you know what I'm talking about right now. You have pain and you're not sharing it with anybody. And the weight of that pain and the weight of that loneliness is too much for you to bear. Now, step one is bringing it into Jesus' presence. But step two is daring to believe that your church family can walk with you. That's why we need to be trustworthy, that your church family will honor you in your season of pain. Because I don't want people suffering alone. I really believe, church, that if we can share our burdens, we can get through any pain together. I really believe that. Well, let's turn to some hope. What do you say? Let's turn to some of these daring, poetic dreams of Jeremiah. I will tell you in my own biblical study, getting to know and understand and a feel for the Hebrew prophets is the hardest for me. I think because they're not preachers. And I was trained to be a preacher. They're poets. And most of you know I was trained in science. I did lab reports, not poetry. <laughs> so it's taken me a long time to learn. I'm still learning how to read and understand the prophets. But what are the prophets? They're not kings. So they don't set policies. And they're not practical. So if you read most Christian self-help books, Five Steps to a Better Life, you don't know what to do with a prophet because a prophet won't give you practical steps. They don't tell you how to do anything. And this is what drives us crazy. But there's so much poetry in the Bible, we've got to learn to read it. They simply, prophetically imagine. <laughs> That's what they do. They don't even, and imagine this in the world, they don't even try to convince you of anything. It's not what poets do. Poets are content to suggest and evoke and explore. That's what poets do. So how does this poetry help? We're, we're, we're in a series where we're trying to lean into the reality of exile we're trying to figure out not just to, not just to brush away the difficulties of exile, but also we're people of faith. We, we live with this odd mixture of despair and confidence, so we know God is working good even if we can't see it. So what are some of the benefits of exile? Well, in the midst, I mean, if you read through your Bible, in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, we don't see an end to the faith in God. <laughs> In fact, people held fast to these promises of God. Even, in, even when the world was ending around them, they believed that God would be true to his promises. And they believed that God would return them to the land. And they knew, they knew that when they were returned, 
Israel would be different. Jerusalem would be different. And they knew that it wasn't going to be like it was before. And they knew they were going to become, they they needed to be a new people. They needed to be a new Israel. They needed to, to build a new Jerusalem and they needed to build a new temple. And in the midst of all the despair and the, and the exile and the loneliness and the sadness, people like Jeremiah dared to dream. And if you read through the prophets, I mean, this is part of the, the line of Scripture. If you read through the prophets, what you'll find is most of these prophets dared to dream about a king who would come. Jeremiah is one of these prophets. So 600 years before Jesus, in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, listen to this. Behold, the days are coming. When, Jeremiah? I don't know, but they're coming. They're coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king, and he will deal wisely, and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. No more of this kings trying to be like Egypt. Or Assyria, or Babylon, or, or into the New Testament, Greek, Greece, or Rome. Not, no more of that. This king will be the embodiment of righteousness. And he will finally lead a people who really show the world something they've never seen before. In fact, in his days, Judah will be saved. In fact, in his days, Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which we will, we will call him. Who's this king? He's so connected to God, we will call him the Lord is our righteousness. That's his name. That's how we'll know about him. Jeremiah's prophet, he's just talked about how all these in the line of David have failed. The shepherds have been self-interested. They haven't cared for the people. When's it going to come, Jeremiah? I don't know. But the days are coming. They're coming. I know it looks like everything is coming to end, but the days are coming. And Jeremiah gets a vision of a king who will be concerned and care for his people. He will save his people. Jeremiah also dares to dream. He imagines a new covenant. <laughs> this is one of his gifts of Jeremiah's language. If you read through his prophecies, he's going he's to use this metaphor a lot of, of divorce. That part of why Israel's going into exile is because they've broken covenant. They've committed adultery with their idolatry. They have loved other gods. And so Jeremiah says, well, there's, there's an old covenant, but, and that's coming to an end. Well, actually, it's going to be fulfilled in this new covenant that's coming that's even better, right? This is what Jeremiah says in chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was, again, here's this metaphor, their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least talked about this last week a little bit. There's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God anymore. From the least to the greatest, they'll all know me. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The old covenant came. It was written. God wrote it on two two tablets of stone. He gives it to one man. But this new covenant, 
everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, God is going to write his law on their hearts. Everyone. A community of the people of God where everyone knows him. Instruction is no longer necessary. No more motivational speeches. Nobody's got to get you riled up because you're already motivated by the love of God. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been redeemed and restored. You've been loved when you were unlovable. And now you just want to love others. It's a new covenant. In this dark, tragic time, Jeremiah has a vision of hope that God will not abandon his people. There's a day that's coming. He doesn't know when, but but God's going to write this covenant on their hearts. And these people of the new covenant, listen to this, they won't need to speculate what God is like. They will know without a shadow of a doubt what God is like. Because something is going to happen the day, I don't know when, but something's going to happen in the days to come where God will fully reveal who he is. So fast forward 600 years, God speaks with the utmost clarity. We could say God writes his most beautiful poem. God gets as clear as he can get on who he is and what he's doing. John says the word, the word of God. The word of God that ministered to Jeremiah. It's always been, becomes flesh. And he dwells among us. And everybody who wondered who could God really be, well, Jesus is the ultimate expression of who God is. He makes it crystal clear. And on the cross is the ultimate example of co-suffering, self-sacrificial love. Now we know beyond a shadow of a doubt who God is and what he's like, and it's good news. So 600 years after Jeremiah, Jesus, Palm Sunday, is coming to announce the destruction. Jeremiah announces the destruction of the temple temple gets rebuilt, gets destroyed in the year 70 by the Romans. I've stood there. There's a mosque there. There's no longer a temple. Jeremiah, or Jesus comes in the spirit of Jeremiah, Luke chapter 19. I'm just going to read verse 41. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, like Jeremiah, he wept over it. He weeps. And he weeps because what he's saying there, if you read those words, is You keep running after the Romes of the world, the Babylons, and you're going to keep getting the same result, destruction. But if you dare to follow me on the narrow road, you will find life and peace and wholeness and love. And then just a few nights later, Jesus gathers a group of people who trust in him. And what does he say in Luke chapter 22? I'm just going to read the final verse up there, verse 20. It's kind of the last supper of the old covenant. (laughs) As we wait for the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. After 600 years, the king has come, the righteous branch. And the new covenant is now something available to all of us. Jesus is the new beginning that we're all longing for. 
If you're here this morning and you're new to the Christian journey or you're tuning in online and you just felt there was fire in your bones and you just had to be here today and you find yourself in exile, I want you to know that Jesus is the new beginning. The day has arrived in Jesus and he's everything you're looking for. But I also know there's some of you that have been walking faithfully with Jesus for decades and you, and you still feel like your life is a tragedy and you're in exile. Well, here's the day. <laughs> here's the day. Jesus is here. And I know, I know we might, until Jesus re- returns, we live in this tension of already not yet. We live in this odd mixture of despair and confidence. But the Christian response to tragedy is not to deny the tragedy nor pretend that it's not there. The Christian response is to understand that in Christ Jesus, no story is left as a tragedy. If it hasn't finished well, it hasn't finished yet. So this week, I know you don't want to do it, but it might be the healthiest thing for your soul. Make some art, whether it's a prayer or a song or a journal entry or actual art. Make some art for the audience of God and lament what is broken and let King Jesus heal you. Amen? Let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, I'm well aware that this is not a a fun application. But you never promised everything you asked us to do to be fun. You actually said it'd be hard. That's why you call it a narrow road. But you also said that if we obey, if we obey everything you command, we will find life. So part of our faith this week might just be that you know better than we do. I mean, I just think being human in this world since the fall, since eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's part of our faith is to come before you again daily and say, all right, Jesus, I'm going to trust that you know more than I do. And even though I think I'm really right on this, it seems like you might be leading me in another direction. I'm going to trust you. Let's trust Jesus this week. And for those of you, as I'm praying, if there's a heavy burden on your heart, some grief, some despair that you really haven't shared with others, I I don't like to pressure people or rush people. I think Jesus is the safest person you'll ever encounter. I invite you even now as we sing this last, this last song is beautiful. I I invite you as we sing this last song to invite, purge that wound. Let Jesus clean it out and heal it. And and maybe ask the Spirit of God. I know you don't want to do this. We have some great people in this church. I'm around this week. Maybe ask the Spirit of God, is, is this the week that I share this unbearable burden with somebody else? I'm just tired, Jesus, of carrying it. This is not authentic life. <laughs> But I believe you have life for me. I've never lamented before, but this week I'm going to practice lament. (laughs) And I'm going to wait for you to write a beautiful story in my story. Jesus, would you meet us where we are this week? In your name we pray. Amen.